If you take too broad of a view on adversity, you're really setting yourself up for failure. Part of overcoming that is, is being micro-ambitious and biting off small chunks at a time. Hello, I'm Andrew May, and you're listening to another episode of the NAB Business Fit podcast, where we chat with a range of experts across multiple fields to find out what fuels them and to learn lessons that can be applied to running a small business, which is especially important right now. Today's guest is an expert in mindset, micro-achievement, and moral strength. Back in 2015, when he was a senior about to graduate from high school, doctors diagnosed him with stage 4 Burkitt's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is one of the worst types of cancer known to man. He was given two weeks to live. In the face of that, he still fronted up to his graduation ceremony and gave a heart-rendering speech. That speech went viral around the world. It's now had over 1.8 million views. Not only did he survive, but he is thriving. He's gone on to become an internationally renowned speaker, a best-selling author, and the founder of an online school, wellbeing and resilience program called Sorted, S-O-R-T-D. He's a lot younger than me and a lot cooler than me, so he doesn't use E's or vowels when he can get away with it. I can't think of a better authority to talk about resilience and surviving the tough times. Jake Bailey, B-A-I-L-E-Y, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Now, I know what you used to do, similar to what I used to do before COVID came along. You used to do a lot of keynotes. So take us back. What were you doing prior to COVID stopping the economy in Australia and your home country of New Zealand? What did life used to look like? Oh, man, I, I think, as as you say, for a lot of people in our industry, it looks a, a very, very different situation at this point in time than it was even one year ago today. So if I take that example of, of exactly 365 days ago, this time last year, I was over in the United States working with the United States Forest Service, who are known really only for two things. One is Smokey the Bear, uh, and secondly is they are the people which Donald Trump had a crack at because they didn't rake up enough leaves and, and cause the California wildfires, as he put it. So a year ago, I was I was over there right now and working with them, but I was working predominantly with businesses back in New Zealand, corporates and government departments, and also uh, schools as well significantly. So I think I spent about maybe 125 days away from home last year, traveling back to New Zealand uh, the majority of the time for work. And I think, you know, as I'm, I'm sure you felt about it, it's a real pleasure and an honour to be able to to do that kind of work. And I was I was having the time of my life and, and really enjoying that. But obviously the, the inability to travel this year has necessitated some some change and some adaptation. We're not going to use the pivot word. We're gonna we're gonna try and avoid that as much as we can. I told you we get fined every time we've fined it and we'll give it to your sorted program. It's a great program. Absolutely. We'll talk about, but- I, I, I could I couldn't agree more with the finding for that, but yeah, it's necessitated a bunch of change this year, and I think that's going to be a positive thing as well. I think it's definitely changed the uh, the outlook, and it's definitely provided me with a whole new or encouraged me to develop a whole new skill set, which is more relevant and applicable to what I've been working on this year, like uh, giving presentations via a laptop and and looking back at yourself for an hour and a half instead of looking at an audience. It's a very different experience. Do you know some people don't even get out of their bedroom? They just do it from the bedroom. <laughs> who, who would think? Can that, you that believe is, that? that? That is outrageous. I, I, I cannot. Uh, I cannot. I better fill people imagine. in because those watching on a video, you, you got a beautiful backdrop before. But when we first dialed in, we we're having a, a friendly oh, chat, and you said, "I better get out of the bedroom." Uh, I didn't even yes. know. Yes, now my laptop is uh, it's propped up on, on two pillows right now on, on top of the bed, funnily enough. So uh, we, we haven't quite made it out of bed, but, you know, it's, it's all right. Now, loads of, loads of questions I want to talk to you today about mindset and about what you're doing with Sorted. But before we do that, I'm asking a lot of our guests, how are you starting your day from a physical and psychological point of view to be positive and to really give you the energy to, to go down different paths? And are you doing much cycling? Because the last time I saw you, it's not a very good visual for some listeners, Jake, but we were both in Lycra sweating and you're a, you're a huge <laughs> supporter of Tour de Cure. Yes, uh, we met absolutely. through a mutual friend or two mutual friends, Bruno Morel, the chair and Jeff Coombs, co-founder. But what, what are you doing now to stay fit physically and psychologically? Yeah, I mean, I think a big a big part of COVID and a big part of the, the change which has come with that lockdown, lockdown as you'd, you'd put it, the restrictions 
however severe they are or are not, is trying to maintain some semblance of uh, routine and normality. So I guess a bigger part of, of this year for me than perhaps in prior years has been living within a routine and whether that be, you know, waking up at the same time each day and, and starting my day with, you know, sitting there with a the morning coffee and not moving on to anything else until I finish that. I think little things like that about, about building um, some habits within the day have made a really big, big difference because I think, you know, with things being reshuffled this year, there's certainly been the ability to uh, to make things a little bit more of a free-for-all than perhaps in the past. And I know a lot of your listeners may have experienced that in terms of working from home or changes in how they're operating. There's certainly been a lot more room for movement. And I think that actually, whilst that's enjoyable at some times, I think it's not necessarily sustainable for a whole year. I think that living within such a, a wide variety of, of opportunity and possibilities every day, it kind of generally detracts from the experience the longer you do it. So I think it was really exciting to start with for people going, woohoo, I don't have to go, I don't catch the bus or the train or cycle or drive to work. You know, I don't even yeah. have to wear proper pants. Exactly. We, we can exactly. just have all these conversations. <laughs> but I think the novelty wore off. And then for people who've been in Victoria, the novelty has more than worn off with the second phase of Absolutely. stage four restrictions, which are now unwinding, thank goodness. So we can get back to some sort of normal operating, with, especially with small businesses. But getting that rhythm and routine is hard, isn't it? When you go from what you've had, which is on a stage and writing books and doing media, then you, you have that jolt as well. But when we talk about a jolt, take us back to 2015. You, you speak so articulately. I've, I've seen you speak about this so many times before, but is it surreal actually going back to that moment? Like, is there a, is there a difference between, and not that you do, but you know, pressing play and telling the story and actually living the story? Absolutely. It's quite fascinating to uh, look back on it within my own head because increasingly with time, there's certainly more and more of a disconnect between me as I am now and, and the me that has been sharing the story for the past couple of years and the me that was actually there in, in the heat of the battle. And it becomes, yeah, it becomes increasingly difficult to kind of reconcile that as time has moved on. But I guess if we continue with the theme of looking back on this day and in, in years prior, it was actually, I believe it was, it was five years ago today that I was diagnosed. So it was either, on this either, very day, yeah, this this very oh, day, I was. Wow. If it was not today, it was it was certainly tomorrow. But it was this week, and at this point, five years ago, I was certainly incredibly ill in hospital at the time. So. When I look back on that now, I think I, I experience the same level of disconnect that probably anyone experiences when they look back on themselves as an 18-year-old. And I guess what, what contributes to that as well is that at the time I was so significantly unwell and, and on so many strong medications that the memory around that time isn't particularly clear and, and some of it is quite obscured and fuzzy at the moments, which, uh, which are quite vivid in my memory, uh, yeah, still very much stand out to me. And that speech, and, and we'll play the speech both on audio and video so people can, can listen or they can watch that. Did you rehearse that or did you just get up and, and come from the heart? It's, um, yeah, no, I, uh, the, so the speech itself was actually written by and large prior to the diagnosis, which is a little bit odd in, in some ways. And, and certainly a lot of the messages which were within the speech became a lot more poignant and relevant after the diagnosis. So I guess in some ways it, it's yeah, reassuring to know that I was on the right track even, even prior to the diagnosis. But I do, yeah, I do vividly remember rehearsing the speech and that was that was in the days and nights leading up to when I was expected to be able to deliver it. And I remember rehearsing it one night and so many of the messages within the speech had, had previously been around, you know, moving forwards into the future and, and me and my schoolmates progressing out into, into the real world, into life. And I do remember laying in bed one night, sort of silently crying to myself as I, as I read those messages, thinking to myself, you know, how times have changed in a sense that these messages may not be so relevant for me uh, now. But it, it was something which, you know, I... Um, I felt incredibly indebted to the school to have had the opportunity to lead them. And I felt that I really owed it to those young men who had put their trust and faith in me to lead them for that year. I really owed it to them to finish the year as strong as I'd started. So you were school it. captain in that year? 
Yeah, so school a school captain is what you Aussies call it, and and I think most schools back in New Zealand refer to it as a head boy, but our school referred to it as a senior monitor, uh, which is like a, a senior prefect or head prefect. So, yeah, I'd, I'd been senior monitor for that year, and and it was a job which I uh, yeah I had felt I had a huge debt of gratitude to repay to repay the school that had put their trust in me. So something uh, else guess, that's huge is at eighteen years of age, you're told you've got potentially two weeks to live. I can't imagine, Jake, what ran through your head. Like, I can't imagine how you woke up and, and reframed. Like, <laughs> how, how do you yeah. move forward? And Can you go back to what did you feel or did you not feel? Was it quite numb? It's really, yeah, it's quite an interesting question and it's a, a, a painfully boring answer, really. And it's one of the questions which I get asked most often, I think. It's something which really fascinates people about my experiences yeah, the psychological experience of going through it more so than the physical one. And I guess at the time uh, when I was told, you know, without without treatment, you have two weeks to live. And even with treatment, you don't necessarily have a, a guarantee of life either way. The response was just really um, not what you would expect in terms of uh, anger or sadness or fear uh, or hurt or any of these negative emotions. It was really just a sense of, Hmm. I mean, this is the situation that we found ourselves in now, and, and I think we've just got to do all that we can, which is really just to get on with it at this point. Uh, so I've, I felt probably more than anything else, the main emotion was a sense of determination to begin this process because there was an understanding that, you know, there was only going to be one way through it. Um, you're not going to go over it. You're not going to go under it. You have to go through it. So I think I was yeah, quite, quite determined to get, get stuck into it as quick as possible. I like how you brought the lyrics of going on a bear hunt into that. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's it's a piece of literature which has really stuck with me through through my life. I think, um, <laughs> and and actually, I say that I say that being facetious, but it actually does have some some fantastic fantastic lessons to abide by within it. I'm back to reading that book, it's a wonderful story. It's, it's exactly it what you did. Were it you is. always a really calm, considered kid? Were you like that from a young age, or has has your experience with cancer changed you or has it just given you more perspective, more gratitude, more wisdom? I th yeah, I mean, I the experience has certainly changed me and altered me significantly, but I think that it probably it probably hasn't changed that, that, that particular part. I think I was a bit of a, yeah, a bit of a kind of a dorky kid really in the sense that I would rather sit with the, the adults and, and hang out with them rather than hang out with other kids. I didn't necessarily feel like I... I fitted in a lot of the time and I think that came from a sense of not not some kind of superiority complex, but I just sort of felt that that I I wasn't yeah, I, I didn't quite fit in with within within, you know, that 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 young person's world. So I yeah, I guess that that's always been there, but certainly the experience itself has has changed me indescribably and changed who I am as a person uh, forever. In what way? Jeez, I mean, we could we could fill the whole podcast with it, really. But I guess the most crucial things are just an outlook and, a, and an approach to to everything, really, to life, to to myself, to the people around me, to uh, to every day and every opportunity that you get. And you know, my experience isn't a very it isn't a very uncommon one, I suppose. And given that half of half of all Australians will experience cancer at some point in their life. And I think that anyone that has been through that experience or anyone that has seen a loved one go through that experience will understand that kind of change that I, that I mentioned. So I'm fortunate in the sense that I don't have to really put words to it because it, it is, it's, it's an indescribable factor, but uh, I guess the bottom line is that it's, it's made me a better person. Uh, it's made me a happier person. It's made me a kinder person and I'm incredibly indescribably grateful for for having had that experience and having gone through it because it's it's been a positive change. I don't think I've told you about my cancer story. Twelve years ago, and I, I pause and I think, how old is my daughter, Michaela? Three months before she was born, I was diagnosed with melanoma. I, I had lymph nodes removed. I had an excision on the back of my shoulder. And it was a refining period for me as well. So I really get what you say. It's a, it's a jolt because really you're going to live or you're not. Mm. Uh, you can put your faith in the doctors and you can put your faith in being optimistic and trying to you know, go around it. You can't go through it or you can spiral down. It's In psychology, we call it broaden and build theory. You know, you spiral up or spiral out, broaden and build, or you can definitely spiral down. And I can remember talking to one of my best mates, Mario, and he said, don't check the internet. And I said, mate, I did last night and I couldn't sleep. 
Did you do that? Did you Google back then and, and um, see what was happening? Yeah, no, I, I I didn't. I felt very well informed by the the doctors and the, and the medical professionals that I was working with. But you know, if I if I, <laughs> I I guess in a sense that there was no there was no curiosity which came with it because all of the information which I'd been given by the doctors was uh, was pretty severe to to begin with. So my treatment that I went through was referred to as salvage protocol, like that is that is the actual name of it. And and when in a medical event, when doctors are referring to to salvaging you, uh, you know that that's not necessarily I going don't to be. Think there's much no. left to the imagination <laughs> on that, is there? Jake? No. That's not a great sign and I was aware you know from the outset that that Burkitt's was the the fastest growing cancer known to man and that it was capable of doubling in size or the tumors could double in size every 24 hours so I mean once, once you're sort of once you're educated uh, about that there's not really a whole lot more that you can that you can learn or, or desire to learn about it so yeah I didn't I didn't have that that sense of yeah, longing to, to seek out more information. And I'm curious to know when you speak about this, albeit at the moment in a digital format, or when you write about it, what you're doing with the school program, which I've got some really some big questions for you in a moment as well. I love that you're now impacting youth. Well, you've been impacting youth since you were young, but now you're in your early twenties, <laughs> having a much more. I think you can say you're impacting your your cohort. But when you get up and speak about your story, is it draining? Do you, do you do you live it? Do you feel it, or can you almost detach now? And it's your story, and you can craft a message and a learning to other people. I think I don't think that there's a yeah. It's not a drain. First, first and foremost, it, it isn't draining, and it hasn't really ever been either. And I, I'm not I'm not quite sure why that is because I know that so many other people have so much emotion attached to their experiences or similar experiences to what I've been through that it does have a really negative impact on them sharing that. I, I guess for me, when I look at, at my story, I see solely the positives in the, in the experience virtually. And that isn't necessarily a, a, a trick of mindset either. I just genuinely feel that there was so much more positive within my experience of cancer than there was negative. And even within, you know, the, the hospital ward where I spent all my time and in the room where I had all my chemotherapy and, and all my treatment, there are so many more positive and happy, fun memories within that place than there are negative ones. And I think that I've just been really fortunate going through that experience to have had some amazing people alongside me, whether they be, you know, the nurses and doctors or, or family and friends who have really shaped and crafted my experience of going through that time it would have been significantly difficult without them and their support. So for that reason, there isn't actually any negative emotion attached to my experience of cancer. I, I don't feel any type of way apart, about it apart from yeah, gratitude. And, and I look back on it with sort of, Perhaps the rose-tinted glasses, but certainly uh, this, this glowing positive perspective that maybe other people look back on their time as uni students or, or high school students or falling in love with with their husband or wife. I just I look back on it and it's uh, it provides a, a whole a whole bunch of really positive memories which we sort of still sit around and, and joke about and, and bring up and talk about as as a family or as a group of friends. I'm going to ask you a question. There's a simple answer, yes or no. No pause. You've just got to answer whatever sure. comes into your mind straight away. Absolutely. Do you realise how impactful the presentations you have are? Uh, <laughs> yes or no? Uh, I, I think yes. And and I guess and the, and the reason I ask you, I'm just interrupting you because you, you, you're eloquent, you're humble. I've been in your presentation a couple of years ago at the Tour de Cure Snowball. And I get goosebumps thinking about it now. It was moving. It was emotion-provoking, thought-provoking, humble. Uh, it, was, it was just it was one of the best presentations I've seen, and I've seen a lot of presentations over the years. And did, I just wanted to know, do you realise the power that getting up on stage has on other people's lives? I, I, I suppose certainly at the point when you saw that presentation, I don't think I did. I don't think I did realise. And certainly throughout my experience, even from the outset of the first speech that went viral, I've always been 
blown away by the impact that my words have have had on other people. Um, but more than that, I've been blown away by the impact that their reciprocal words have had on me. So I think what has really shown me shown me how much of an impact this had on other people is uh, their willingness to open up and and to share their own stories. And and after presentations, I you know meet with people and and they come and talk to me and they say you know my son or my daughter uh, is going through cancer right now or has passed away from cancer. And I've had audience members come up to me and say tell me that they had been diagnosed with cancer themselves the day prior and they hadn't even found it within themselves to tell their husbands yet and and the first person they felt that they could tell about their diagnosis was was me and and I guess if anything has shown me the impact that that I've been fortunate enough to have on other people through sharing that story it's the amazing stories which people have shared uh, have shared in kind to me as, as, as a reciprocal moment and I think that is really what has been so special for me about having this opportunity and this blessing to be able to go and share to share my story with people and one of the first people you did share that experience with as an 18 year old is your girlfriend Jemima uh, tell her I said hello. Lovely, Jemima. I will. And five years, I believe, you've recently yes. celebrated because you told her just after you – you just met before you were diagnosed, is that correct? Yeah, I think – I'd have to look back. I think we were, we'd were been going out for less than two weeks uh, at the time that I was diagnosed and, and she was 17 and I was 18. So it was hardly like a – you know, we weren't in a in – a, committed long-term relationship where you'd be expecting a partner to stand by your side and support you. It was actually the polar opposite to that. So what did you say to her when you were diagnosed? Well, I, I called her into, into the room. And as I said, I was on some quite strong medication at the time. So I decided that the best way to go about this is to say to Jemima, the doctors know what's wrong with me, but I don't think I should tell you. And Jemima took a, a different view on whether that was the right thing to say or not. She said, I think you probably should tell me. And so I told her that I had Burkitt's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And according to her rendition of the story, I actually neglected to mention the fact that it was a form of cancer. She sort of had to, to deduce that from from the atmosphere of the room uh, more than anything that I'd said specifically. So I, t- I told her about what the situation was and and basically what it boiled down to was I, I said it's going to get really messy really fast and that's that's not fair on you that's not what you signed up for two weeks ago or 10 days ago you know you have you have a life you have exams coming up you have an athletics season coming up what you need to do is you need to run for the hills and and I won't blame you for that uh, and no one is going to blame you for that but you just need to, to get out of here because um, things are going to go downhill really quite quickly from this point onwards and I'll never forget it was, it was the most powerful moment I've experienced in my life but she just sat there and, and said no we'll, we'll get through this together and we never never said anything else on on the subject after that that was that was the final word and it was it was decided just like that and yeah i mean if there is anything within my story that that makes me that brings any emotion up from the cancer experience it is it is that that kind of indescribable courage and bravery from her and also the support and care that i had from other people around me in that time i think that is that is really what has moved me so much about i could hear the waver in your voice then when you're talking about (laughs) i thought i'd described it uh, disguised (laughs) it quite well it's uh it's it's funny (laughs) uh it's it's a beautiful story and it's a story you think people are going to have in their 60s or 70s or 80s you know stay with me yeah. we've been together for 40 or 50 years mm. we've been together for 10 days it's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're teenagers it's, <laughs> yeah. talk about a fast track emotion roller coaster growing up mm. overnight and do you, mm. on that do you do you think that you both missed anything because you had to grow up and evolve so quick or do you just think you've gained so much I, I don't, yeah, I don't think we missed anything. Jemima was always even, and it was what drew me to her in part, was she was always very intelligent and, and mature and emotionally mature and intelligent. So if there was anyone that was going to be capable of of withstanding that kind of incoming storm and steering it down without flinching, it was always going to be her. And I don't, I don't think we, we, 
lost anything but if we did it's certainly been outweighed 50 times over by the gain which we made and you know people would pay for for such a strong and stable foundation upon which to build a relationship and there's really nothing more that that could have created a, a better um, a better yeah foundation to build upon from from the outset and I mean even from I think, yeah, what creates relationships is that, you know, vulnerability creates trust and trust creates connection. And this process that we, we went through very rapidly was I was extremely vulnerable, extremely quickly, and, and even things not only physically fragile, but things like, you know, losing all your hair within uh, a week of, of, of the a week of diagnosis. So within a couple of weeks of relationship, losing my eyebrows, my eyelashes, losing 15 kgs. I mean, I was the most physically, uh, the, the most physically disturbing to look at really that I would ever be throughout our relationship and the kind of yeah vulnerability that that creates within you, but also just being so reliant upon her. I, I couldn't, I couldn't go out or take her any places. I, I had to have her come and visit me while I just lay in bed incredibly unwell. And, and that vulnerability did create trust incredibly quickly. And that trust created an incredibly strong bond and connection. So you know your think, words when you talk about Jemima and you just, the compassion and love, you know, you're melting women's and men's and children's and then any mammal watching or listening to this, you're going to have an impact on them, Jack Bailey. And I'm going to pull you up as well. You said you Aussies call it. Where are you residing? Yes. Or where are we recording oh, from at the moment? On, on the Gold Coast. The but, Gold I mean, Coast. Where, where do all the Kiwis live? I mean, we've, I think Bondi. there's a doubt. <laughs> Bondi, right. Okay. Well, if I could afford it, if I, the public speaking was still going, maybe I could afford to live in Bondi. Bondi on the Gold we're, Coast, yes. We're, we're relegated to the Gold Coast for now, along with the rest of the Kiwis here. So okay, a, a Kiwi still. Look, it is a, it's a beautiful story and one that will continue to evolve as years go by. And what is also continuing to evolve is you, you're adapting. And a lot of people listening to this, their small businesses have had to adapt. A lot of them have been decimated their, their former operating model. So when you go from doing, how, how many events were you doing, live events prior to COVID in an average? I year? mean, oh, it's, it's been difficult to know, but I suppose, yeah, 25 or 30 last year, maybe. So a couple of events a month, uh, you're doing some consulting work as well. You're writing, you had a job mm. in the media in New Zealand. Then when COVID came in, that stopped, the keynote stopped, everything stopped. What, what did you first do? Like what was your first, we go back to around, you were in uh, Australia then, so were you in the Gold Coast? Yes, so yeah, we go back to the middle of March. What did you do for the first couple of weeks, so that last two weeks in March? Apart yeah, from like I we mean, all did going, ah. Oh, well, I, I was about to say, I think it was pretty much just that R kind of moment. And looking back at the mid, my last trip out at, for public speaking was mid-March. And I flew back to New Zealand. And at that point, they had closed the self-processing e-gates and they were manually processing all the passports to check that you hadn't been within any of the hotspots in the previous 14 days. And I remember texting Jemima actually and saying, you know, well, is this a joke? Do they really think they're going to manually process all of the passports for the rest of the year? And that was on the way back to Australia. And about two days later, the border was closed. And I was like, oh, okay, right. Well, that's that then. So uh, about that time, it was kind of a process of how can I begin to move this to a platform where I'm able to do it from the Gold Coast? And, and how can I branch out into other areas which I don't necessarily have any experience in uh, up until this point, but I know that I'm capable of doing. So the focus, yeah, very quickly became online work and, and presenting to audiences uh, online. And that's, I mean, they're very different. As I said, it's, a, it's, it's not public speaking, really. I think public speaking is the ability to well, actually, it's the ability to speak to the public, and when you're doing it via a laptop, it, that's that's laptop speaking. There's no public there. So Keith, Keith Abraham, who's a fellow Queenslander, up up your way, he talks about the speaking skills in the old days. Is you had some knowledge, some domain expertise, and you talk a lot about adversity, challenge, but about leadership and about morals and micro achievements and all the M words I want to get in today. So you've got content, and then you have craft. So you've got speakership. So you know how to hold a stage and how to walk a room and you know, high points, low points, when to lean forward, when to give people time to speak. That's the craft. Then you'd have AV production crew, like wizards, like I've got here, the wonderful wizard. So you had experience and stories to talk about. You've got speaker skills, 
plaque a few slides together on PowerPoint or Keynote, bang. I think okay. the big thing, especially in the speaking and events industry and, and education industry, is the production. So now we need production values because you, you don't mm. have the technical crew and a stage, a platform. You are talking to a camera. So it's a huge acceleration. So how did you get your head around that? Look, I mean, probably not necessarily all that effectively. I, I think I gave, and as you can, as we've discussed, I'm still giving uh, presentations from from bed. So um, it hasn't necessarily accelerated all that much in that area for me. But I guess, yeah, certainly the focus moving forward, I think, as the business changes is going to, I completely agree, it's going to necessitate a focus on that AV production because, yeah, I mean, I think, Audiences have also been shown that at any conference, organisers have been shown that it's very possible to run presentations remotely. And I think that of the feedback that we've had from presentations which I've given remotely, it's been overwhelmingly positive, certainly better than people expected in terms of the experience quality. And in the short term, at least, there still remains some kind of, of novelty factor. But I think that people have become very much used to it. I gave a presentation last week to a group of uh, school students in the Marlborough region back in New Zealand and the kids, it's a beautiful place. And the kids didn't even take notice of the fact that it was a remote presentation because half their classes this year have been in the precisely the same format. They've been in their classroom on Zoom. So yeah, I think it's going to change the future of of how we do these things. There's always going to be exceptionally high demand for in-person events, but I think that there is going to be a real sense that as a backup, it is acceptable to use some kind of remote presentation. We're starting to see a hybrid model now where you might speak to a smaller group, again, depending on COVID guidelines. It might be streamed to multiple locations, then it can be watched on demand. Mm. But I've been doing a little bit of work with Defence, with Navy and Canberra, and it actually means driving to Canberra, presenting in a room with people separated. Oh, I'm loving it. But just to get mm. back on stage and yeah. you connect. So while there has been this fast track in technology and production and Zoom and Google Hangouts and Microsoft Teams and Demio and different platforms as well, it is so nice talking to people. And some yes. of the people that it's so nice to connect with is kids, sorted without the E, S-O-R-T-D, <laughs> explain. Yes. Sorted without the E because it stands for Schools Online Resilience Training and Development. So the focus is really providing basically a library of video content which educates young people about how best to to develop their skill of resilience in life. So the underlying principle is that, and and I'd be interested to see if you agree, is that resilience is effectively the most significant factor in how successful someone's life is, uh, but also in their perception of of how good their life has been. So it's far more significant, it's far more important that you are able to be resilient than to be born rich, intelligent, lucky, if you want to to, to bring that into it. Even in terms of health, I think it's far more important to have the skill of resilience. And it's a a bold statement, but it's it's quite easy to to provide evidence for because often the people that you find that are happiest in life are not the ones who have had the easiest lives. They're not not people that have kind of skated through without having any significant adversity which they've had to face. In fact, on the contrary, often it's the people who have faced the most significant adversity that have the happiest, as they would define it, I suppose, life on a day-to-day basis. And the reason for that is that they've had their opportunity to, to craft and hone their skill of resilience. Unfortunately for young people, the, often for, for, for most people in life, the first opportunity they have to develop the skill of resilience is when they face their first significant adversity in life. And the reason it's a focus on young people is simply that I think teenagers are, that's really the age when uh, people or young people begin to face adult real world problems without necessarily having that adult and real world experience to to cope and deal with them. So the underlying principle behind Sorted really is, you know, it's, it's a, a hypothesis of what could we do? What positive change could we create for a whole generation if we could provide young people with the skills to overcome adversity before they face it? And the reality is there are there are very definite uh, skills and, and tools and tips which people can apply to adversity to to come through it with a more su- a successful outcome or to be able to overcome that. And 
you know, these, these are backed by psychologists. These are tools and tips which they use, which don't really filter through to our young people because, you know, it's all very well for a guidance counsellor to stand up in assembly and give a few, a few words of advice, but it needs to be a young person presenting this content. We need it to be getting through to that target audience and have it tailored in, in, in a way which is uh, something which they really understand and relate with. So, so yeah, what, what can we give? My, my thoughts on it, it's a big thumbs up. And I'm going to ask you a controversial question, but my thoughts first, resilience is connected to the word strive. My business is called strive from the French word estrave, which means to push through and come out the other side. And you are spot on. I was just digitally high-fiving you. It's the struggle or overcoming struggle. It's the challenge. It's the grit. It's that passion and perseverance that Angela Duckworth talks about that creates scar tissue. So having gone through cancer, you're a stronger, more robust person. You've, you've got resources to draw from. So when COVID comes along, I'm sure there was some story, storytelling in your mind, Jake Bailey, where you went, this is pretty easy. You know, I've overcome a whole lot more than this. So first thing, I love that notion of resilience. And you're really like getting really excited now because you're touching on self-efficacy, Albert Bandura's self-efficacy, which is the construct where you have the power to influence your world, not, not you know, it's someone else's fault. And, and that's what we see with a lot of kids, right? Hi, we hope you have been enjoying this podcast so far. Don't forget that we have plenty more podcasts and content just like this on NAB Business Fit. Go to www.nab.com.au forward slash business fit for more content to support your physical and psychological well-being and to help you take care of business. So here's the controversial, potentially controversial question. Do you think we should be giving ribbons to kids that come 10th or participation awards? No, of course not. I mean, I, Good I, answer. Let's continue I, the interview. Is that a controversial opinion? I mean, I, I, I will endeavour to, to, to keep repeating that answer in all the circles I can until it's not a controversial opinion anymore. Because How does that go at some schools though? Because there are a, a, a bunch of teachers that – have been educated in that philosophy as well. Not, not, not all. I'm not stereotyping, but you know, and often that's influenced by parents. How do you? It's go certainly influenced like by parents, and I suppose when you look at it, it's quite a natural desire for parents to try and avoid their their young people facing suffering or adversity. But like I said, I mean. If, and if that is the case, if we really remove all of these micro uh, situations of adversity from a young person's life, the first time that they face something which is you know goes wrong for them, the first time they face significant adversity, they come up against the biggest hurdle as their very first hurdle. They haven't come tenth and 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 felt pretty poorly about themselves. The first time something goes wrong is when you know mum mum gets cancer and mum dies, and you know dad can't fix that, mum can't fix that. Sure, they could fix you coming. 10th place and they could give you a ribbon but if you haven't had the opportunity to face these ch small challenges and, and to learn and train yourself to be more resilient by those situations then when you come across the the real real life scenarios you are just set up to have a catastrophic failure um, and I mean there's nothing really more I can I can say on that other than to to and rob children of their opportunity to face adversity by themselves is the greatest disservice that you can possibly do to a young person because you are almost certainly setting them up for, if not significant failure throughout their life, then significantly more suffering than they would have to go through otherwise. It's hard for me to not think and feel, so not just cognitive, but it's visceral. You feel blessed to have been taught resilience at a young age. <laughs> so when you got to your big challenge at that stage at 18, you had developed a set of skills you probably didn't even know you realised. What taught you resilience? Who taught you resilience as a young kid? I mean, it all... All common, boring stuff, I suppose, at the end of the day, whether that was my my parents splitting up when I was young or, or grandparents passing away or, you know, seeing my grandmother pass away from cancer herself just a year before I was diagnosed. I think it's all pretty, you know, real world kind of stuff. But 
these this is a training ground for life i mean these are the times in which you should be uh, aiming to to equip yourself with the skills which will hold you in in greater stead because you know your parents splitting up is tough but you going through a divorce is tougher and uh, your grandmother dying is tough but your mother dying is tougher so these are the times when you really need to be learning to to sit with the the uncomfortable feelings and i think that's really what it comes down to in part as well it's it's learning that sometimes in life there are situations which you know you can't escape from sometimes things uh, go wrong and then there's no way to fix that and there's no way to take away how that feels oh sometimes you just have to sit there and, and live with that, that that suffering and and really as the the u.s military puts it embrace the suck which just you know lean into that adversity and and to to train your body that it's not necessarily something to to run away from or, or try and escape and i guess in some ways there's a lot of parallels between uh, physical fitness and, and exercise which i'm sure you've considered in terms of learning to sit with the hurt and sit with the suffering that also exists within developing resilience for life Absolutely. I think the two are very, very much connected. And and interesting when you talk about embracing the suck. One of the other studies that Martin Seligman actually did with US military a few years ago, we know about post-traumatic distress, uh, PTSD, which is now correctly, it's been changed to post-traumatic stress, not calling it a disorder. But there's post-traumatic growth. So it's stress on inoculation, little bits of stress. And then what's really important is some time to recover. And then little bits of stress and time to recover leads to this post-traumatic growth. So if Mm. we can shift the message of sorted from little kids to big kids who are going through some discomfort, what's your message for small business owners? How can they apply sorted to their big, big, big world? You know, we have little kids are, well, there's still little kids in all of us. Yeah, absolutely there is. And I guess I think in in the situation we're living now with COVID, we're very much immersed in it. And actually it's something which came to this is something which came to the forefront of my mind only only the last couple of days as I've been reading the life story of Jemima's grandfather, who was an incredibly successful businessman back in New Zealand. He was an all black as well and just an all-round great guy. And as I sat and I read through this man's life story, there were so many incidents of immense adversity and suffering and 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 loss and really difficult, difficult situations which he'd been through. And I, you know, this is, you know, 75 pages maybe. And and as I got to the end of it, I, I stepped away from it. And I thought to myself, out of all of those situations, which he lived within for a prolonged period of, of time and suffering and, and extended situations of adversity, there was always something which he came out into in the other side, at which point it, it ended, you know, this concept of this too shall pass. And I think as we live in this COVID world right now, you know, this isn't this isn't a moment of adversity where you know you, you crash a car and, and write it off. This isn't something which passes quickly. This is something which we're going to be residing within for a, a substantial amount of time. And so, I think what is important for small business owners to do within this time is first of all to take stock of the fact that that this period which we're living through is in your life story. It's going to be a, a tiny little snippet of it, and also the fact that because it is such a prolonged period, it's important to step back. From from it uh, within that time as well to try and uh, remove yourself from that adversity as much as you can and to, to take breaks from for yourself and for your mind because like you said the stress inoculation effect that you can remove yourself and have time to recover from that as well and, and that is how you have that post-traumatic growth. It's hard so, when you're in the thick of it isn't it? Business has been shut down there's no traffic there's no what the at, at, Certain stages, people have thought there's no end in sight. I love that mm. Hebrew proverb. It's one of my favourite ones too. This too shall pass. Mm. But when you get in the thick of it, everything's spinning, everything's evolving around you. It is hard to look long, long, long horizon, which is why I love one of your terms, micro-achievement or mm. like little micro-steps. So can you explain, first of all, what it is? And, and secondly, how did, you, how did you come to that? Yeah, so, so micro-ambition is the concept of, yeah, I mean, it's it's being done a million times now, I think, and people talk about, you know, becoming 1% better every day and other variations on it. But I guess the idea of being micro-ambitious is the realisation that many goals, if you look at them as their entirety, are going to be impossible to achieve. And I guess my 
realization of this was during my treatment when I came to to the realization that if I looked at the hundred days of chemotherapy that lay ahead of me, all of the terrible medical procedures which I was going to go through and, and all of the uh, the suffering which was going to be part of that experience, it would have seemed like a mountain that was impossible to conquer. And so within that time, my focus just became really centered on getting through today's chemotherapy and willfully disregarding the fact that there was more chemotherapy coming to tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that as well because you know if you take too broad of a view on on these situations or on, on adversity in general I think you're really setting yourself up for failure so yeah part, part of overcoming that is is being micro ambitious and and biting off small chunks at a time chunks is actually the correct terminology because I talk often about the concept of chunking which is just breaking up a situation a goal uh, or adversity into smaller smaller bits and pieces and getting through it as you can whether it's a week at a time a day at a time sometimes for me in hospital when things were at their worst it was an hour at a time or a minute at a time and I mean that's another thing which which it's a so many parallels where it's applicable in sport and endurance sport as well but I think yeah if you set yourself you set yourself up for failure if you look at adversity on on a a very wide angle uh, lens you're an optimist It, it comes out talking to you in the time I've spent with you it just shows it radiates from you there'll be some people watching this who aren't optimist and they'll go yeah sure Jake, it's all right for you. But if somebody is more of a pessimist, and we talk about attribution style, so pessimistic, it's pervasive, it's permanent, and it's personal. So you know, COVID, it's impacting all parts of my life. I can't help but think that I've had a, a result or a cause, causative factor on this, and it's not going to go away. It's permanent. What would you say to those people? How would you apply some of the lessons you've got, sorted some of your life lessons, some of your optimism to someone who's really struggling right now? Yeah, I think I think when it comes to a pessimism, pessimism, or even an adversity which is as pervasive throughout the entirety of, of society and the world as was what we're facing now, I think you really have to centre it around things or any of the things which aren't affected by it. And I guess for me, that will always come back to uh, the people around me that I love and care about, and, and my family and my friends. I think at the, at the times or the points in which things get toughest in life for me, what I always end up coming back to is the fact that there are still these people around me. And, and that's not to say that, you know, these other sufferings or failures which I'm facing in life aren't significant and don't affect me. But I guess it's always, it, no matter how bad things are, it always comes back to the fact that, you know, I've still got this behind me. And it's not, you know, that kind of advice, it's not It's not something novel or new, it's not groundbreaking, it's not even that really inspiring. But if I'm going to be entirely honest, for me, with all of my experience and all of my understanding about resilience and overcoming adversity and, and all of the people I've met and spoken to, that is still just really what it entirely comes back to for me is that no matter how bad things are today, there's still going to be uh, my family and, and people that I care about and love their tomorrow. Mm. Who are the biggest influences on you as a leader or in leadership? It could be a person, it could be a course you've done, it could be a quote or a movie. What, what has had a real impact on you? A leadership, I mean, certainly the, the, the quote which will always be leadership for me is a quote by Teddy Roosevelt in a speech. And I actually quoted it in the speech that I gave at my school, which went viral. It's, it's a speech. I mean, if you look at the quote, the quote will be uh, most easily found by Googling the man in the arena. And if I try and try and think of it off the top of my head, then it, it sort of revolves around the fact that it is not the critic who counts, uh, not the man who points out where the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, uh, who knows the, the great striving and effort, who, who valiantly strives towards a goal, and, and what it boils down to is It wasn't that a bad effort just on record, by the way. Yeah. I, I'm still going. I'm just, my, my favourite part is actually, 
the idea that by striving or by having having aimed to achieve the goal, then you your soul will never belong with those cold and timid souls that know neither victory nor defeat. And I think for me, yeah, leadership is as certainly as, as it says about the idea of being willing to put yourself out there and, and being able to, as there will always be criticism, but being able to to overlook that and and to know that, that the position you've put yourself in is, is a noble one in the sense that if you try and do your best, then you have done better than any of your critics. The next question is a tough one, especially in the world we live, because we can adapt and change and evolve so quickly. That as a frame, what what do you think you'll be doing in five years' time? So crystal <laughs> ball gazing, I'll ask you on two levels. What would you like to be doing and what would you like sorted to be doing? Sure. Uh, what would I like to be doing? I mean, I would love to continue i mean the bottom line is i'd love to continue to to help people and i i have seen as i said through the work that i've done that there have been some people who have been uh, significantly positively impacted by the work that I've done. And I guess the bottom line is that even to, to have helped one person makes, makes that work worthwhile. And so as long as I believe that I have the capacity to continue to help people uh, in some way, then I will continue to do so. And I don't see myself as, as a messiah or, or anyone's savior or anyone's guru. And I, I really detest the fact that within our industry, even there are so many people who are, you know, self-appointed heroes. And to be to be blatantly honest, are you I, one of those motivation speakers? Do you get people walking on? <laughs> is that what you do, Jake? Like, I, so I do just, we go to the event and do we break the plank? Do we walk on the hot coals? <laughs> do I buy the online audio program? <laughs> I'm starting to sound like you know power and passion. Yeah. So it's not what you're is saying. That you, get Tony up. Robbins, is that you? Um, <laughs> I didn't I, mention I, any I, names. I just it was just oh, the, that's, the that's accent. Fine. We, came we, in. we can bleep that out. That's easy. Yeah, no, it's uh, that, that's not the angle I come at it from. Obviously, and it's it. It gets to the point where I often feel not embarrassed, but hesitant to explain to people that I do public speaking for work because that certainly works for some people. But I think within the New Zealand and Australia as well, that's not who we are, and that's not what we want, and it's certainly not what I am or what I do. And so when I when I talk about wanting to continue to help people, I don't come at it from that angle, but I come at it from an angle that you know a teacher or a nurse. Or, or anyone who works in a profession where they want to positively impact someone and that's their guy. I come in it from the very same level as they do, not, not as though I, I feel like I have so much to offer to the world. You, um, you impact a lot. And I was winding you up. I, I know your stance on the so-called motivation guy. That, that was called a plant, Jake. Um, that was, it, was, it was beautifully done. <laughs> There's got to be a book in there. Is there a book in the wings? There's, I mean, so, yeah, there was a book which was released about my my story more broadly back in in 2017 called what cancer taught me and you you're very right that there is there is a book in there for young people focused around teaching them resilience and you're you're very right that there, there might be I one could in the feel like right we've been, I've just I, I wanted to interject before talking about sword and I thought no no I'll let it run out I'll let it run out and when I said <laughs> a book and you lit up I thought ha ah, maybe he's not allowed to tell me maybe I've unearthed something you, you've read me very well, and yeah, you've read the situation very well. But there will be there'll be something in the works, and there is yeah, there is something in the works, and there will be something in 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 the ethereal existence in the future. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Awesome. Now, as a guy in his young twenties, you're meant to have a massive digital footprint. You're meant to be on TikTok and you're meant to be on LinkedIn. Well, LinkedIn's more for grown-ups, right? But you're meant to be on all the socials, Instagram and Facebook and yes. everything else. And Kara, our producer, came back and said, who is this mysterious guy? Apart from having <laughs> 1.8 million people look at his wonderful high school speech, you don't have a big social media platform. Is that what's well, obviously no. purposeful? Talk to me about social media. Yeah, I, I usually kind of reserve my my comments around uh, social media because it is, I think I usually just come off as, as a cynic really or, or a critic, but I think that... How old um, are you? Like I'm 20, 23. <laughs> You're not 23. I don't have any 23-year-old <laughs> fitness friends or people I hang out with at work that aren't on social all the time. You're an um, yeah. old man and a young man's uh, body. Exactly, 23 in, in body and about 73 in heart, I think. So, I, I mean, the, the bottom line was I don't, I'm not going to get into it too deeply because, like I said, I just I think I come off uh, more critical than I intend to be. But I just, just it's just not for me. 
So can I ask you another question? How do you sure. build a business, sorted without the E, for young kids without having a big social media presence? Or is, is that part of it? You're just, you, you don't have it yourself, but you're building one for the business. I, there is a, yeah, a, a small ongoing build for, for the business, but at the same time, I don't necessarily feel compelled to invest that much effort into it because I don't necessarily want to, to draw that many young people into it either. And I think that it would probably be a positive impact for young people if they spent less time on social media. So I'm not going to, to play into, into that too much, but I, I guess, how do you build it? I think I've really, I've been incredibly fortunate to work with, you know, 50 or 60 schools over the past few years and to be able to to draw on 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 contacts within them and I guess yeah my hope is that the that sorted is powerful enough to to put itself into schools and that it doesn't require a, a huge social media following and I don't require a huge social media following to do so totally on brand for those people who are listening to this or watching this and are inspired by you and want to find out more about sorted there's got to be somewhere where they can find out some more information where should they look uh, so the website is get sorted, obviously without the e. Uh, get sorted dot com. Um, so there so is www get g e t sorted s o r t d dot dot com, com. and cool. they can have a little read through there and yeah, more information, I guess, about what what our underlying uh, principles are and, and what we're aiming to achieve with it. Now, I've asked you a lot of questions today. I've asked some that were planned and some we went a little bit off script as well, that have evolved as we've had the conversation. But before we get towards the end of today, is there any question you would like me to have asked you that I've missed or is there a question you would like to ask me? Jeez, that's a, that's a fantastic question. Turn it, turn it back around on me. No, I don't think there really is anything which which jumps out at me particularly. I feel that we've we've covered all of the ground really quite quite beautifully. Maybe the only thing you could ask me is how much time I'm going to spend on the front of the peloton uh, on the next tour to cure right <laughs> because uh, you might not like the answer, but it's a question I've been getting from a lot of a lot of the tour to cure family. <laughs> Well, I think implied in that question is an understanding that they're going to be putting you up the front of the peloton. So uh, you and I are <laughs> going to be catching up with Jeff Coombs very soon. So Absolutely. I'll preempt that and tell Jeff before we catch up that you've put your hand up. In fact, you put both hands up and said, I want to be up the front of the pack leading. Of course, 100%. Especially it's, when uh, there's a headwind. You don't want to be sitting in the lounge chair when you've got a tailwind. You just want to be, for anyone who's lost on cycling I mean, terms, it means he's going to do all the work. All of the work at the front, and and that is um, that is all about you know stress inoculation. It's about about managed adversity to develop your resilience. So, I mean, maybe that is that is something we could talk about, and that's something which I'm fascinated about. I guess within within your work as well is the parallels between sport and endurance, sport and physical fitness and and mental well-being, particularly in a resilience context. Because for me, I the endurance sport that I do both uh, within Tour de Cure, which obviously has an ulterior motive, but also the endurance sport that I do competitively for, for myself in my spare time, I think is something which I only got into because of my my passion for experiencing adversity and and really the the only way that I could find to put myself into that physical and mental suffering with which I became quite acquainted and, and familiar with during my time in hospital is to you know go run 40ks or to to go and and compete in the coast to coast and, and race across the South Island or compete in triathlon and I guess I'm interested in, in your thoughts between the parallels of endurance sport and, and resilience. I'm looking at Wizard and he's going, his eyes are going, like I, I could talk about this for an hour. So let me wrap this up. Let's have a, another longer conversation another time. I think there's another podcast at least left with us, Jake Bailey. I'll answer that on three levels. Number one, fit healthy parents have fit healthy kids. This is research that came from UWS a couple of years ago, but you don't need to go to UWS, go to your local shopping centre. Fit healthy parents have fit healthy kids. It's called role modelling and especially dads, the way they role model young women, young daughters, it has a 10 times increase in their self-esteem and self-efficacy. So take out all the research. As a parent, if you really care for your kids, which we all do with kids, live a fit and healthy life, number one. Number two, there's definitely a link between physical well-being and psychological resilience. Many, many years ago when the Hippocrates crafted out the Hippocratic Oath, 
roughly in my uh, uneducated translation of Greek, it goes along something along the lines of a fit, healthy body and proper nutrition is the platform for a flourishing mind. Now, we're talking thousands of years ago, Jake, and suddenly mm. we've had neuroscientists getting the physiologist talking to the psychologist. Uh, Hippocrates knew about it when he's standing up over the beautiful blue ocean thousands of years ago. So point number one, fit, healthy parents have fit, healthy kids. Number two, definitely healthy body, healthy brain connection. And number three, don't do too much, meaning when I've been the fittest, I haven't been the healthiest. And I think sometimes we think just all endurance builds resilience, but it's a bit of cardio, a bit of yoga and a bit of weights, especially as we mature for human growth hormone and muscle density and lean body mass. So there's my summary and what could have been a 60-minute discussion and Thomas has gone, hey, I've I love catching up. And when I'm up on the Gold Coast visiting mum and dad over Christmas, we hope Anastasia's going to open the borders up. I'll definitely catch up. We'll do a couple of bike rides. You are going to lead as well. We're going to get you ready. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get you sorted. But it, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for your time today. But but thank you for the graciousness that you bring to an interview like this. That's very, very kind. I mean, thank you for the opportunity. And it's been it's been a real honour to just sort of muse over these things in a, in a informal kind of setting. And I'm sure that you experience the, the pleasure that comes from just being able to kind of mull over these things as opposed to getting up and, and, and presenting and, and drilling them into people. It's nice to just sort of sit and, and chat and be casual about it. And I hope that your listeners uh, and viewers can take something away from it. That'll take a lot. Jake Bailey, thank you very much. Thank you. Hey, it's Andrew again, and we hope you enjoyed that interview. Just a quick note to remember to please go to nab.com.au slash businessfit. We hope you really liked this episode and received lots of value, and we would love it if you can go to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast and click on the subscribe button. We'd also really appreciate it if you share it with friends or colleagues you think might also benefit from these messages. And we'd really appreciate if you can rate and review it. We love seeing your messages and love seeing your ratings. Okay, that's it for this time. We look forward to connecting with you again on the next episode of NAB Business Fit.